Hello, I'm Jeremy N. Smith, and this is a special guest episode of Stimulus and Response. My co-host Damon Valentino is off, and we're featuring a conversation with Lama David Curtis about his path to becoming one of the first few hundred Westerners to become a monk or lama in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. As you'll hear, in 1992, David and his wife Diana were both named lamas, and in 1996, they established the Tibetan Language Institute to preserve and teach Tibetan language and culture. I made the mistake of serving tea and taking notes on what David was saying as we were talking, so in the first few minutes of the show, you'll sometimes hear cups clinking or papers rustling. My apologies. Welcome, David. You're from Montana. You're born here, right? Yeah. My father was a high school teacher and administrator at little Class C schools in Montana. Class C? That's yeah, the yeah. smallest, yeah. So I, I went to seven schools before I graduated here in Missoula. And then I, I wound up going to the university. You went to UM? Yeah. I graduated in 67. So as a freshman, I was standing on the Oval with a few friends from high school. And we were all kind of amazed, you know, your first uh, days in college. And I was flipping through. They have a cheap little schedule or program of classes that are offered. And I just came upon the entry for the philosophy department. And it had some little discussion about how philosophy was the love of wisdom. And I said, that's what I want. So you majored in philosophy? Well, that's kind of an indication of, you know, I'm a little bit different, a little strange, eccentric person. And the philosophy department here is quite an extraordinary story. The philosophy department was founded by Henry Bugby. And Henry was teaching at Harvard. And he met a very significant Japanese Zen philosopher named D.T. Suzuki. And Suzuki had quite an influence on Henry. And myself, growing up in the 60s, you know, we became interested in Asia and alternate thought systems of what the Native Americans had to say, what Asian people had to say. So it was really common for people to be exploring those things. So a lot of, a lot of people's explorations weren't really that deep back then. Like sometimes we joke there was a story about a guy riding on a bus in San Francisco, heard two kids talking, and one of them said, well, last week I was a Hindu, but this week I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> but Henry's interest in Asian thought was much more profound than that as someone with a PhD in philosophy and teaching at Harvard. It wasn't a casual teenage thing. And so the University of Montana, the philosophy department from the very beginning had this stream, you could say, of interest in Asian thought. So I wasn't a very good student. I'm kind of lazy and pretty distracted and interested in so many things. But Henry had a profound impact on me. And then one of Henry's graduate students, one of the things he was interested in was the beginnings of philosophy. And he saw that happening globally in three significant places, China, India, and Greece. And I became interested in Plato, but also India. With him, I saw somebody that really gone very far in the exploration of the intersection of Eastern and Western thought, you could say. So finding some commonality in the thought of Greece, China, and India. 
And he was a real scholar. So he learned those languages. He learned Sanskrit and translated the Bhagavad Gita. And there was something about who he was as a person that really impacted me and influenced me and gave credence in a way to my own interests that there wasn't, there weren't a lot of people that accepted the fact that Asia even had philosophy. So from that same school of thought, Henry Bugby and Richard Gottschalk, a remarkable graduate student, taught a course one summer that I took, a survey course in Western philosophy. And he kept writing Greek words on the board. Back then we had chalkboards. And said, if you want to understand Plato, you have to learn Greek. And so I naively said that, oh, I'll, I'll do that next quarter. Next, you know, next term, I'll learn Greek. So I took a Greek class and then spent five years as an undergraduate in the, in the classics department here. So were you a philosophy major or a classics major? I graduated in classics with a minor in philosophy. Then what? So then I graduated, and what does one do living in Missoula with a degree, right, in classical languages? So it's kind of a long story, but a guy hired me to run a company that I had no experience in, and we became friends. What kind of company was it? It was a log home company, and he didn't want to run the business. He was a classical Chinese and Buddhist scholar. So we thought if he hired me and trained me how to do it, I would run it, and then he could be the CEO and continue to study it. So he's into uh, study and translate Chinese Buddhist texts. And so it didn't work out with me working in that capacity for him. And so I went to Mexico for the winter. And when I came back, I reconnected with him, and he and his wife hired me to be the full-time tutor of their children. They wanted their children to have a classical education. So at this time, I had had four or five years each of Greek and Latin and a few classes in Sanskrit and then quite a few classes in philosophy. And he wound up teaching me a lot about Buddhism. And then we began to study classical Chinese, he, which he knew, you know, he was teaching that to me by way of reading the classical Buddhist poets of China. So after a year and a half there, then my wife, whom I had met at the university, she was a philosophy major as well. She graduated with two BAs in philosophy and French. So she came to live with me the second year. And so we had two teachers and three kids at this little academy. Now the kids are grown, but I taught the boy, the oldest boy, two years of classical Greek when he was starting when he was nine. We were given a house to live in and a beautiful place on the river. And it was full of my friend's library. So we had a lot of time to uh, read. And the, the kid's mother and my wife came to live with us. Deanna is her name. The mother of the children and Deanna and I each evening would read Shakespeare plays out loud. You know, we each have a copy of the book. So we're a little eccentric. The first year in the evening, I would read Buddhist sutras with the mom in the evening after the kids went to bed. She lived in a house next door with the kids. And then they came over to my house for school. Anyway, I met a Tibetan man in Seattle. And I'd never met a Tibetan person. I didn't know anything about Tibet. And he had a little shop in the university district, I think it was. Could have been on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And I would pop in frequently in the summertime. So the Tibetan man and I were getting to know each other. And I had an interest in 
Tibet, and I knew nothing about it. And in, in his shop, he had striking photos of stupas, and I was just interested. And then I'm the kind of person that reads just about anything. Like, if there's nothing else, I read the cereal box. So I was reading books that he had there. And one day I went in, and he said, the Dalai Lama of Tibet is coming to America. And then he pointed right in my face and said, and you should go see him. I said, oh, that's interesting. And the Dalai Lama, that would be, it was on, Tibet was almost like Mars or something to me. I knew nothing about it. I knew it was some ancient Asian culture, but that, you know, I knew nothing about it. And then when school began again, I mentioned to my friend that hired me, the father of the children, that I met this guy, and he said the Dalai Lama was coming. And I just mentioned it casually one time, and then sometime went by like a month or so, and, and he said, so you said the Dalai Lama's coming to L.A., right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I guess he is. And then he said, doesn't your mother live in L.A.? And I said, yeah, she does. And he said, I'll pay your way if you take the oldest kid, you know, that I was teaching, to see the Dalai Lama in L.A. And so then I convinced Deanna to come as well. And so she and the boy and I went and we stayed with my mother and then saw the Dalai Lama teach. And something significant for both of us happened with that encounter there. The philosophy was beautiful and the way it was being expressed was just very, very impressive. But quite apart from that, there was something about who the Dalai Lama was. The little reading I'd done in Asian wisdom at that time, I always thought it was something that was to be integrated into one's being rather than merely an intellectual enterprise. So the Dalai Lama seemed to be a person who had done that more than anybody I'd ever encountered. Mm. So my principal thing, I'm not really a scholar or you know much of a Buddhist in some, some regards, but, but I am curious. So at that event in L.A., they announced that the Dalai Lama was going to be doing a program in Switzerland the next summer. It was going to be 12 days long and free. We didn't have very much money. So Gianna had lived in France a couple of times. She was a high school foreign exchange student and then went back again in college. So she loved France and wanted to return. And her dream was to study philosophy at the Sorbonne. And so she wanted to go back to France. And I'd never been to Europe, so I wanted to go to Europe. And I wanted to go to Greece since I'd been studying the language and philosophy and a bit about the culture for years. So the next summer, the second year after teaching the children, we set off to go to this program with the Dalai Lama. And I think, I can't really speak for her, but I think Diana saw that as like a springboard into graduate school at the Sorbonne. And so the Dalai Lama program was only 12 days. And I went to Greece and Deanna was uh, visiting her friends in Burgundy. And one of her friends said, oh, if you're interested in this Buddhism stuff, they're building a new temple an hour and a half away in Burgundy. So she went to visit and then we wound up living there for five years at that Buddhist center. It must have been quite a visit. So I thought I was going on a one month summer trip to Europe. And I had what was fairly close to a perfect job teaching these kids and then reading and then living in the forest. The the people were wonderful. The children were magical. And then I really only worked about 20 hours a week teaching the kids and had the rest of the time to read and 
hike in the woods there. And, and then when Deanna came to live with me, it was, you know, it was quite a good life that we had there. But then what we found in France was an institution that was all about introducing people to a way that they could integrate the teachings into their being. You know, going back to what I said before about meeting the Dalai Lama. He's someone that seemed to have accomplished that and done that to a supreme degree. And then this institution where we found ourselves, that's what that was about. About integrating what you're learning and who you are, you mean? Buddhism is about mind training. So it's really popular now to do body training. I think the basic idea is that inside someone like me, you know, it might be like <laughs> chubby and really out of shape. Mm-hmm. There, there's actually a fit person in there somewhere. And so then you can undergo this training and discipline and become that which you are, you know, physically. Buddhism, for me, is much like that. For me, the fundamental tenet is that we all have this extraordinary potential for true nature, but then it's occluded somehow. And so I think we're presented with a task in life, and that is to discover our true nature. And then in Buddhism, I find a philosophy that is beautiful and interesting in and of itself, but it's more a philosophy as a way of life. So the American philosopher, Henry David Thoreau, he talked about philosophy being a way of life where one lives guided by wisdom. And in Buddhism, it's thought that that wisdom is our true nature. You know, we've got that within us, so that's our potential. Just like the trainer might look at me and say, oh, that person has potential to to be in shape. Okay, and that all comes out on this day trip to the monastery? We had an interview with the head lama, and I had the experience, this guy knows what I want to know. And they were building a traditional three-story temple there. And I told the Lama that I was interested in some meditation instruction. And then I'd become curious about the Tibetan language. You know, when you look at it, it's like a puzzle. Like, wow, that's really a language? How does that work? You know, it doesn't look anything like one of our uh, European languages. So I was just curious about it. And he told me, well, if you help me build this temple... I'll teach you meditation and Tibetan. So uh, that's a pretty good deal. So you stayed. You did it. Deanna worked in the house, and I worked as an unskilled laborer for a year, helping them build the temple. So they were at the end stages, and it was built largely by volunteer labor. Every now and then, they would bring in professionals to do some part of it, you know, like the heavier part with the concrete. But that was quite hard labor for a year, as the year concluded, this place where we just happened to wind up was the first place outside of the Himalayas that the Tibetan Buddhist seminary was taught. And the lamas there, the head lama especially, said that he thought we should enter the next cycle of training for that program. And that's a program where you live a cloistered life. So when you enter that, it's a very particular type of retreat. So I like to call it the Buddhist seminary. Nobody that I know calls it that, but that's what I do. Because when you come out, then you're one of these Lama people. So like when a person goes through like a Christian seminary, they come out, they're a minister or a priest. 
So it's very, very similar in that regard, I think. What is the setup? One of the first things is there are no beds. So I didn't lie down for three years. I'm listening. So sometimes you see uh, child sandboxes that are sort of just a wooden frame around an area that's filled with sand, right? Those little sandboxes that people can have in their backyard. Sure. So we meditated and slept in a wooden box. Hmm. And so on the front, it was about, uh, about a foot high, maybe. And then the sides rose gradually up to where there was a back on the box that came to about right where my neck meets my head, kind of right, right there. And then inside, we'd have a meditation cushion. And so we slept in there, we ate in there, we studied in there, we meditated in there. We spent most of the day just sitting right confined in there. And the idea is that the environment is created to maximize what we're trying to accomplish. Like it's a supporting environment that's set up to maximize this exploration, this inward journey that we're going on for three years. And so some distractions are removed. So it's a cloister. There's a wall around it. And then there's a lock on the door, but the lock's on the inside, locking the world out. It's not locking us in. Anybody could leave anytime they felt like it. It's suggested that it's best not to, you know, to undergo the training. You go there and you stay there and you do it for three years and three months. So it takes a little getting used to the sleep sitting up. So I had a removable board that was about a foot wide and maybe two feet long that I would put at an angle and then I would lean back against that to sleep. But I started sleeping, sitting in meditation posture. But your body has different ideas than you do if you just say, I'm just going to sit right up here in this wooden chair and go to sleep. And the body's saying, I don't think so, you know. And so you can go to sleep there, but then when you're asleep, you kind of will kind of collapse a bit and you want to get back to lying in bed like you've been conditioned to your whole life. And so so I would lean back against that. So I I slept off and kind of inclined like this, like you might sleep in an airplane or a bus or something, but not reclined very much, just a little. And so then I used to say it's the shortest commute to work in the world because you just (laughs) sit up straight at 4 a.m. when a gong goes off to wake you up, a gong in the courtyard of the cloister. What's a typical day? We each had our own little cell, just a room of our own, like a one bare light bulb. And there's like a morning wake-up practice that we would do. It's called morning yoga, but a few different recitations that you do. Maybe you light a candle on your shrine and do some frustrations. And then we would enter into a two and a half hour meditation session. Each person by himself or herself in their little place there. And after that session, then we would gather together. We had a little shrine. It's about the size of the living room, a little shrine room, a little temple. And then we would do some a group ritual together there. And then we would have breakfast and then go back to our little houses and do another two and a half hour meditation. And then we would have lunch and then we would do another meditation session. And then there's evening rituals, which are really at four o'clock in the afternoon, but that was evening for us if you get up at four. And then we would do a fourth session. And then after the fourth session, there was some like concluding of the day, 
practices that you do as well. So there's four two and a half hour sessions of private meditation, plus two sessions of group ritual, and then two a morning and an evening little practices that you do as well. You mentioned meals. Uh, were you cooking or how did food work? We had a shared kitchen, but we each cooked for ourselves. We had a rice cooker, and so we would chop up vegetables and put the rice on to cook and then put vegetables in it. And then we would do a two and a half hour meditation session. And then even on the lunch hour, there's some practice that you do before you eat. You know, like we would recite the Heart Sutra before we ate at lunch. So there isn't any time for anything else, hardly, you know, like moment to write a letter or something. So I would start at 4 a.m. and finish at something like 9.30 in the evening. And then I would read for a while. And I didn't read any novels or non-Buddhist, non-fiction work at all. Deanna did the same program? Mm -hmm. The men and women were separate. And this was a three-year training program. So you did not see each other for three years? Right. So you were quite close and quite far apart. Yeah, we were about 150 yards away and then didn't even catch a glimpse of each other. And it was there were no phones. It was before cell phones. <laughs> Sounds like the ancient world. Well, that's remarkable, obviously. But at the time, I'm sure once you're in it, it's just what you're doing. Yeah. Was the program the same for the two of you? For the two of us? Yeah. Yeah, but it's just, exactly just the gender. same. Yeah, and we were doing it exactly. It's like being... In the same major at different universities, like in Boston or something, you're across the river from each other doing exactly the same program, but then you never talk and never see each other. So we wrote. So you did write. Yeah, there was a career that would chop for us and because we were cooking for ourselves, so he would chop for us and run errands. Did you even speak to your fellow students who were male? Yes, not very much for the first year. The The guy that became my closest friend lived, his door was 10 feet from my door. And for the entire first year, all we said was good morning and good evening for the first year. And then one time he heard me talking to another guy about the Huichoe people of Mexico, very remarkable uh, mountain people that lived high in the mountains and kind of escaped the uh, conquistadores Mm. whole trip. They're beautiful, spiritual people that still live with their culture pretty intact. Anyway, he heard me mention them, and he had quite an interest in anthropology and knew about them, and very few people know about them. He's actually from Argentina. And so then we realized we had this in common, and we started talking, and we would have lunch together and whatnot. So, yeah, we talked among each other. Was the instruction in English? No, that was a little bit of a problem for me because I didn't speak French or Tibetan. There was an interpreter that would translate the teachings, the oral teachings from Tibetan into French. And then the first year, a monk who knew English translated for me. So we'd kind of sit in the back of the room. And then after a year, I told him that I could handle it. I told him to speak very well, but I could understand This is a very large part of your life, but how would, in brief, you summarize that three years of training? Well, to put it just casually, I took to it like a fish to water, to the point that, well, one of my young friends, one time, after we were in a couple of months, and so 
it sounds almost like fiction now, but the very idea of going for three years without hearing a telephone ring or seeing a red light or seeing a television commercial for three years, just to have that not polluting your mind. I didn't mind at all. You know, I didn't miss that. I'm kind of a gregarious people person, but what I found that we were engaged with was so meaningful that I didn't miss the other. So it's kind of like when you meet someone and you're, you know, like maybe you fall in love or something or you're just engaged, right? And you feel so connected and, and you're enthusiastic about what you share that you kind of forget about like what time it is or what day it is or something, right? The courier attendant guy, you know, our helper came to me one time and, um, and said, uh, he spoke English and he said to me, you know, he kind of looked around like, is anybody else listening to us? How's this going for you? And I said, it's fantastic that time is flying by. Like we're in here three months and it felt like a weekend to me. What was happening? Well, it's all about meditation or trying to cultivate that inherent luminous nature that we all have that's ignored by most people. So it's a situation that's set up to allow you to cultivate that. So there are teachings that are given that show you there's training that you can undergo. And if you decide to apprentice yourself to this system, then you can go through these three stages of understanding that comes from study and then experience that comes from actually engaging with it, engaging in this transformative process. And then the third stage, you can get clips of realization where it becomes real for you. Hmm. Can you unpack those three stages? Like, what, what do you mean by real? So my yoga teacher was born in Europe and then lived in L.A. and New York. And she used to see Marlboro ads and they would have like cowboys smoking cigarettes, but in the background were these mountains. And someone told her one time that those mountains were Montana. And so then she wanted to come to Montana. And so there was part of her that was living a certain life, but she wanted something that was, that was missing. And so in the beginning, it was just like an idea, right? That, that someone told her, you know, this place is Montana. So that's like the first stage. Someone tells you there's, there's another place to go. And so that, that was like the first stage, like learning about it and formulating the idea. And, and then it's like we can imagine that, that she maybe was flying to Seattle for work or something one time, and she flew over Montana and then saw it. And maybe she flew over the wilderness and saw the lakes and the mountains. So that's kind of like the second stage. And then finally she decides, I'm going there, you know. And so then they actually moved to Montana. You know, we could live here. So... Let's move there. And so, so I think life is a journey like that. And, and so the Buddhist, you know, it's not really another place because it lies within you, each, each of us. It's all mind training. And what we're about is it's a liberation movement. We're trying to liberate our minds. It's about uh, discovery of who we really are. I think I've been on a quest. I'm just curious. Uh, like, what is this life that we lead and who are we and who am I really? And then I've never been satisfied just with someone else's answer or only for a time. You know, that might satisfy me for a time, but then I'm curious and I think 
the Buddhist life is a life of inquiry. In Buddhism, we're taught to study and then to reflect and think about what that which we're studying. Does this make sense to me? And the individual person's experience is, is of paramount importance in Buddhism. What's your experience? And so, like in that retreat, we were given a particular teaching on the nature of mind and then a meditation practice to do with the idea of try this out and see what you think about it. You know, see what you discover about your mind. Is it or was it slash is it? These may have separate answers. A rationalist practice for you? By that I meant like, oh, I'm just observing. I'm getting to know my true nature. I'm knowing thyself. Or was it spiritual, perhaps even supernatural in the sense of, you know, I'm seeing space and time and transcending my body and those kind of things. Yeah, some of that, some of both of those, actually. The rational, intellectual, academic part, all of that training is, I don't know, it's kind of like maybe like the space program, like the people that are astronauts, they get trained in different things, like maybe different types of science and and then they make this voyage. And so I think about the people that landed on the moon, you know, Neil Armstrong. And so they go through all that intellectual training and on the mission, they have all that discipline and, and then they're chosen to make this journey and then they make the journey. But when they step out of that spaceship, <laughs> then they're like on the moon, you know, or maybe even when they get up in space and look down and see the earth, Somehow, that's way beyond just all that academic and intellectual training that they went through, right? Same for me when the person actually comes to Montana. Like, I met a guy one time that has never seen the stars in his life. He was a 30-year-old screenwriter in L.A., and he lived in Manhattan, and he moved from Manhattan to L.A., and he had never seen stars. And I was talking about Montana and what it's like to see the stars at night. And you take a guy like that, maybe... And you bring him up to Montana and you take him to a wilderness hot springs in the middle of the night. You know, maybe it's like 70 degrees in the midnight. And then you take off your clothes and you go into the hot springs and then the stars are there. You know, like 2,000 stars are out for a person that's never seen the stars before. And you're naked in the middle of the wilderness and the mountains and seeing the stars like that. And so a person could be actually trained in astronomy academically, you know, maybe just with the books and has has never seen the stars and trained in all kinds of different things intellectually. And then you take the person and you put them there and say, now stay here. Now, Now just stay here for a while. Have your own experience, basically. That's something profound is going on. That's very hard to talk about. And so then when that person goes back, say he goes back to then back to, you know, Hollywood, and then tries to tell uh, the people there about the experience that he just had. So well, how many stars were there? and What was the temperature? You know, so they approach it with that, you know, what I mean. A couple data points aren't going to give you that experience. The teachings guide us into that experience. So for some people, we love the philosophy and the ideas and the teachings. And you can never get enough of them. 
that they're actually preparing you to then meditate. We meditate, and that's taking the teachings into our experience. And then when you do that, you gain personal experience of that, which we're talking about, like taking a kid to the hot springs for the first time. Like, whoa. So you get like tastes of it, and then you come back. Hmm. It's, you know, like when we say coming back, we often mean the quote unquote real world, but you're saying it's not as real. There is something that's an inner reality that we all participate in, but then we ignore that in our society in general. So we have what's called the, I like the expression, the absence of the sacred and just an ignorance of who we really are and what life is. And so then we become obsessed. Obsessed comes from a Latin word. I like the word obsessed. And ob can mean in front of, and the set is where we get our word seat from. So if we have an obsession, then something's sitting down in front of us. So if like we're walking and there's this giant boulder that's on the trail that's as big as a house, it's sitting down in front of us. The obsession that we have with our own ego and with external material things, such things as, you know, are honored in this society, that's blocking us from our own encounter with our own true nature. And so we're always going to be frustrated because we're not being who we really are. And so when people enter kind of a life like this that we've been describing in that three-year retreat, for instance, and that's definitely not the only way to do it, but people get glimpses of something else. And then there's people like Thoreau that just decide to abandon the ordinary, the quotidian, the pedestrian, and go explore and go inquire. So sometimes I say that Buddhism is like an ultimate back-to-nature movement because we're trying to get back to the nature of our own minds. And so when you see Henry Davis, I've sometimes gone, he's going back to nature at Walden there and, and just simplifying and trying to get back to what's real. So we had no idea what we were getting into when we entered that program, but that's part of what it was. Just simplify so there's no TV, there's no movies. I guess that's bliss or torture, depending on your perspective. Oh, my 23-year-old friend that I was going to mention, he said to me, you know what day it is? And I said, no. And he said, it's Saturday. And Saturday night, I lived in Paris. You know, I'd be going to the clubs on the Champs-Élysées. And there's girls' clubs, there's parties. And, and now I'm stuck with all you ugly guys here in this retreat. And I never had, myself, I never had that thought. But I was older than he was. I was 40, he was 23. But I found that this is, I didn't even, it's like stumbling upon what you were looking for and not really sure about what you were looking for. But then when you find it, you go, whoa, this is it. When you finish that program, are both you and Diana ordained as a Lama at that point? Yes. Mm -hmm. And this was also where you learned Tibetan? Yes. We took a four lessons of a correspondence course in Tibetan. And then we were just kind of like thrown into it because all the texts were in Tibetan. Now, when you go to seminary, I don't know, I've never been to seminary, but I think there's often also a, for lack of a better word, pastoral function that you're taught. In other mm -hmm. words, how to tend your flock, how to teach others. Is this part of your thing or was yours no. more focused on yourself and we your development? We were never taught that. And Deanna still to this day, I in the beginning wasn't interested in teaching other people because it was so profound and so beautiful. So we would, to me, it was an experience like 
if you move to the Oregon coast and live there for three years, and say maybe you've got a cabin or a house right on the beach, and then someone comes to you and says, teach me about the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And I know you're authorized to do that because you lived there for three years. So teach me about the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I'm like, never mind. You know, I think I'll teach you the alphabet in Tibetan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started teaching Tibetan. And then actually three or four of the high lamas told me that I should be teaching Buddhism as well. One theme of this story is when serendipity calls, you answer. Recently, I ran into, I'm acquainted with a guy who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And I ran into him. He was going into a restaurant and I was coming out. And we said, oh, hey, how are you doing? You know, and, and what's going on? And what's happening with your kids? And I told him briefly what's happening with my kids. And he said, well, what are they studying? And well, one of them studying history and the other studying classical studies at different universities. And, and he said, well, what kind of career plan do you have going for them? And I just laughed and said, well, you know, my family, we're not real good with that career plan thing. <laughs> and he just said, well, good luck. We just then say goodbye. Goodbye and good luck. I love it. Thank you, David, for joining me. Thank you all for listening. Damon will be back next week and we'll continue our conversations from there. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy M. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.